HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years, a full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. That's what we're talking about today on the Farm Report. You've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with uh, one of the network's longtime sponsors, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the network. I feel like it's been too long. It's time to connect with old friends. And I know since you were last on, there's been a lot of new stuff happening down at White Oak. So I want to tuck right in. Now, um, just to give people who maybe are, aren't totally familiar with you guys a brief overview, um, can you just give us the, the, the lay of the land, the scope of your operation down there? I'll be happy to. My uh, my daughters are the fifth generation of my family to uh, farm this piece of land here in Early County, Georgia. We've got uh, we own a thousand acres. Uh, it's the largest USDA certified organic farm in Georgia, and we rent an additional sixteen hundred and fifty acres. So we've got twenty six hundred and fifty acres where we raise uh, a polyculture of animals. We've got cattle, uh, sheep, goats, and are just introducing hogs. And uh, we also raise several uh, poultry uh, breeds. We've got uh, chickens, turkeys, ducks, geese, guineas. Uh, we, uh, we have built a uh, USDA certified uh, uh, inspected beef abattoir, a slaughterhouse on the farm, and more recently, a uh, USDA-inspected poultry abattoir on the farm. We, we're the only farm in the country that has both uh, beef and poultry 
slaughter plant on the farm. So we're, we're very proud of that. Yeah, I mean, so I'm curious, um, making the transition from um, being, a, being a farmer, being a producer, and, and going into kind of the slaughter business and the processing business as well, I mean, why did you guys decide to, to take that on as, as kind of the next project for, for your farm? Well, there, there was never a day that we wanted to be in the animal slaughter business. We, we backed into that. Uh, what, uh, what happened to us is we were, uh, when my great-grandfather came here, a sustenance farm raising livestock, diverse uh, livestock, slaughtering on the farm and selling it locally. My grandfather did that as well. My father took over the farm after World War II, which is when agriculture really industrialized in this country. And he went from the polyculture of all those animals that I mentioned earlier to a monoculture of cattle and uh, really became a commodity cattle producer. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia, majored in animal husbandry, came back and introduced hormone implants and subtherapeutic antibiotics and confinement feeding of unnatural feedstuffs and uh, really uh, enjoyed industrial farming as a young man and uh, made money doing it. But uh, when I was in my 40s and the 90s, I I guess I became disgusted with the industrial, with the excesses of the industrial practices started transitioning back to the ways of my great-grandfather. And uh, the slaughter uh, part came late. The first thing I did was I gave up uh, subtherapeutic hormones and antibiotics and felt really good about that. And then a few years later, I saw the necessity of giving up synthetic fertilizer and pesticides, so I did. And a few years later, I saw the need to make a polyculture instead of a monoculture. We can talk more about that later. And then a few years later, I saw the need to do on-farm slaughter. So this whole transformation has been uh, a journey, not a destination. So that's, that's how we got into that. Into that. And so I'm curious uh, if, if we can go back in time a little bit. When you were pursuing your degree, um, you know, you, it sounds like you came back to the farm kind of armed with all these different tools of, of the industrial system and the, the subtherapeutic antibiotics and confinement feeding. I mean, are those practices that they taught you in, in school and that was kind of what everyone was doing in school and in the region? Or, I mean, I'm curious, like, how... Um, how that information came to you and, and, and what it looked like, you know, was there pressure to change in that way? Was it recognition of efficiencies or pursuit of, uh, you know, a, a better profit margin? Or how did they kind of present that to you in the classroom? And then how did you understand that once you kind of got back onto the farm? That, that's, a, that's a good question. And, and what's, what's true is the entire industry <clears throat> evolved in that direction. Virtually everyone who was in production, agriculture, went in that direction. And those that didn't perished. They, they went out of business. They went bankrupt. Uh, 
you see, uh, after World War II, uh, a lot of resources from uh, the food industry, from the land-grant colleges, like my own University of Georgia, uh, virtually you know, everyone who had a vested interest in the production of food really focused on producing food uh, cheap and consistent and safe from the perspective that you didn't die of an acute disease when you ate it. And those were noble goals. I mean, it was important to take cost out of food production so um, uh, people on a very limited income could eat well. That's very important. Was and is. Uh, Making food consistent is certainly something that uh, people uh, want. You know, uh, we say consistency can trump quality. People like it to be consistent even if it's not so good. And uh, certainly safety is an issue. You know, that you don't want, we want to put, make our food as safe as we possibly can. So the tremendous resources that went to make food cheaper, consistent, and safe, uh, in the acute sense of safe, uh, was tremendous, tremendous resources. Unfortunately, there were unintended consequences of that. The, 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 those efforts were wildly successful. Food has become obscenely cheap. I know we've got some spiking food prices now, but generally food is so cheap, particularly in this country. Uh, uh, it is consistent. You know, the, the McDonald's hamburger you get today is just like the one you got yesterday. It may not be all that good, but it's, same, it's the same hamburger. And, and people don't die uh, commonly of acute diseases, thank goodness. But the unintended consequences of the success of making food that way uh, was very, very expensive in terms of animal welfare and environmental sustainability. In the effort to make food cheap, consistent, and, and, and safe, we, we forgot about animal welfare. We just lost focus. And we lost about uh, our focus on environmental sustainability, um, and that so I, that that's that's how we got there. I think you know. I, I think you really touch on an issue that uh, is so true. I mean, I think post World War II, there was a real focus on increasing production, making food more accessible, more affordable, because hunger, you know, was a real was a real issue in the US and increasing production was was a real goal and, and something I think uh, you know, top down from the Secretary of Agriculture down there was a real focus um, and and push behind moving towards these production models and it's one of those things I think where the pendulum just swung a little too far and it sounds like you confronted that that pendulum swing in your mid forties, you said that you were responding, you know, the changes you decided to make on your farm were a response to what you felt was the, the excess of the system that you were working with. And can you be a little bit more specific about what, what, what that excess was and and how it felt and kind of who you look to for support and guidance as you decided to make these really substantial changes uh, in your operation? Well, there are a lot, a lot of excesses. You know, we'll we'll just talk about 
uh, animal welfare, and we'll talk about environmental sustainability, just kind of limited to that. From the animal welfare perspective, uh, things like uh, loading 100 500-pound calves that I'd raised on a double-deck semi and shipping them from uh, the coastal plains of Georgia to uh, Colorado or Nebraska to be confinement-fed on corn for a few months uh, was really uh, an animal welfare issue that came to bother me. I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to keep them here. Uh, you know, I've I've used. I have three daughters, and, and the term I've used is it's like raising your daughters to be princesses and then send them to the whorehouse. You know, you, we, I didn't want to send my calves away like that. Uh, so that would be an animal welfare, one of many animal welfare issues I could lift up. From an environmental uh, sustainability perspective, uh, you know, we had used, uh, I had used, uh, chemical fertilizer and pesticides on every acre of land every year, along with some very conventional tillage. And I had literally depleted all the organic matter in my soil. My soil on my farm, that I'm so proud of, had become a dead mineral medium that was only as good as whatever more fertilizer I put out that season. So it's an unintended consequence. And again, I could list many, many more, but those are examples. And so I'm curious, um, there are there are different animal welfare certification agencies. I mean, two come to mind for me in particular, the Certified Humane and Animal Welfare Approved. How do you feel about those um, certifications as a tool for farmers looking for guidance in, in transition? And do you participate in either of those programs? Uh, I participate in both of those programs, and I think they're very good. Uh, animal welfare approved is very good. Uh, certified humane is very good. We also participate in the Global Animal Partnership, which is the uh, animal welfare program that Whole Foods initiated. That's a five-step program. All of them are good. All of them, and all of them have attributes. All of them inspect my farm. Uh, and all of them have great big thick books that tell what is good animal welfare, and and they're right. Uh, but you know, good animal welfare is very easy to determine. If if you enjoy watching the animal, you have good animal welfare. If you would enjoy uh, sitting down on a lawn chair with a glass of wine and watching the animal, the uh, you know. Uh, the animals need to be able to express their instinctive behavior. Cows were meant to roam and graze. Hogs were meant to root and wallow. Chickens were meant to scratch and peck. Those instinctive behaviors, and if those animals are allowed to express those instinctive behaviors, it's very pleasant to watch them. Nobody but a psychopath enjoys watching a sow in a gestation crate or uh, chickens in battery cages or uh, cattle uh, in a feedlot bogging around. So that's, uh, but they're good. All three are good organizations. Wonderful. And I I think it's really lovely to um, 
especially as consumers, it's hard, I think, often to wade through all of kind of the different language and rules and certifications. And I think you put it really well there, where essentially what you want to ask of your food producer is, is, is the animal allowed to express the traits that are, you know, intrinsic to to its nature. And, and I think that's a really lovely way to put it. Now, when you were making this uh, transition, did your end market change? I mean, were you selling beef into one system and then through this transition, you are now selling um, the stuff you're producing on the farm in a, in a different manner than you were previously? Absolutely. Uh, previously, we were had a monoculture of cattle. And we sold live cattle, loaded on a truck, delivered to feedlots somewhere. We were just one link in the enormous beef production complex that supplies beef for this country. Uh, Today, we are completely vertically integrated. Uh, We raise the cattle. The cattle born here, raised here, slaughtered here on the farm. Uh, and as is true with the chickens and the turkeys and ducks and geese and sheep. And then we uh, sell them uh, as, uh, as value-added uh, meat. Uh, we have a, a, a very active online business at our website, um, shopping cart, whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, our biggest customer is Whole Foods Markets. They sell our products from uh, Princeton, New Jersey, all the way down to Miami, Florida. And, uh, and uh, Publix Supermarkets. And uh, we have some food service distributors, uh, Cisco, Buckhead Beef, Halpern's, uh, sells our beef to food service to restaurants and such. Interesting. So um, we are going to take a a short break, um, but when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more into the diversification of of all the different things you have going on on the farm and and how that was maybe influenced by, you know, the expansion of your own family. But but sit tight. We'll be right back after this short break. We are back. You are turned into the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. So, Will, um, I know often in multi-generational farm families, one of the challenges that farms face is as the the, the children become adults and are, are looking for a way to um, make a living, and if they want to stay on the farm, 
the farm in many instances has to kind of grow to accommodate, you know, supporting another family's income. And, and I'm just curious in, in your family, if that, that has been the case is as, as your children have aged, they've pursued different types of activities on the farm and, and where some of the different directions um, that you're working on right now have maybe come from, if that's from the family or if it's coming from you or how that, how that's worked for your farm. Yeah, uh, you know when you have uh, a family farm, family business of any sort, really, but a family farm is a great example, and children, then the challenge is to create the opportunity for them to come back if they want to, but not create the obligation for them to come back. And one of the things that moving from industrial commodity agriculture into this kinder, softer, gentler agriculture did for me is it allowed me to create really good work for my daughters. I have three daughters, and two of them are back in the business with me. Uh, and one is a school teacher, not involved in the business. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I always wanted to run the farm. I didn't want to do anything but run the farm ever. And, and and I was allowed to do that, so everything went great. Had I not wanted to run the farm, if I, uh, it would have been a problem. If I walked in one night and said, uh, you know, I'm, I appreciate y'all uh, passing the farm on to me, but really I think I'm going to pursue a career in acting in New York City, it would have gone over like a bug in the punch bowl. <laughs> But uh, you know, the good news was I, I never wanted to do anything else. Uh, when I had three daughters and the farm had continued to industrialize, it it really was not a work situation that I would have wanted them to come back into. It, it, it would have been okay, but I don't know that they would have wanted to, and I don't know that I would I would have wanted them to. Uh, but uh, since we evolved into uh, this this uh, uh, I'm a high animal welfare, high environmental stewardship. Uh, we don't deal with the big ag companies anymore. We don't deal with Tyson or Cargill or JBS. Uh, we we deal with individual consumers that appreciate what we do or with uh, companies like Whole Foods that have an appreciation for the value we put in. And uh, it was a great place for my daughters to come back, and they've done so. And by the way, uh, when I was uh, operating this as a commodity cattle farm, I had three employees, none of whom uh, made a lot of money. Uh, today, we've got 85 employees. We're the largest privately owned employer in this county. And you know, we've got great people, and I, and I think we've... we've provide quality jobs. We, we, uh, nobody makes minimum wage. Everybody's on a bonus program. Uh, we have subsidized health insurance. We feed lunch to everybody every day. So it's a good workplace. Yeah, I was curious about that because I, I know often in discussions around the food system, the, the term vertical integration is often looked at as a, as a negative, um, as large companies or conglomerates of companies kind of taking ownership out of the hands of people in communities. And so 
you know, why is it that you feel like that's the the right terminology for for your business? And and I mean, how would you respond to critique of of that system? Good, that's that's a great question. I've never been asked that before, but luckily I do have the answer. You know, vertical integration has always uh, in the food business been considered to be bad, and there are reasons why. It's, it was the central that that is the centralization of the of the food. It represented the centralization of our food production system in this country. Uh, we now brag about the fact that we are vertically integrated at this farm at White Oak Pastures, and that's because it is part of decentralizing the food system. And so, what, what we're talking about here is uh, top down. Uh, vertical integration, which is what we the industrialization was, where large multinational companies uh, have huge uh, slaughter plants that, that process as many as 400 head of cattle per hour, 16 hours a day, out of feedlots with over 100,000 head of cattle, and the vertical integration goes on from there. Ours is bottom-up vertical integration. Uh, We are a family farm, a 146-year-old family farm that my family owns 100%. And we have returned to the production methods of my great-grandfather, raising the animals here, slaughtering them here, and distributing them from here. So it's uh, both of them are vertical integration, no question about it. But it's top-down centralization versus bottom-up decentralization. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and so on, on that note, you know, you guys have recently added the the chicken processing um, facility, and you were just we were just chatting for a minute before the show started. You also have a, a fledgling... Um, I don't know, restaurant in quotation marks happening on, on the property. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. No, I, I will. We, uh, uh, it's brand new. Uh, we, have, I mentioned a minute ago, we've got 85 great employees that I, and I like every single one of them. And, uh, we bring the, we're, tw- by the way, we're very rural here. We're 12 miles from the nearest place to get something to eat. And it's a fast food restaurant. So you know, we bring these guys way out here in the country. Uh, we work hard here. This is very, very physical work. Everything we do here is very physical. And we work uh, at least 10 hours a day, very often 12 hours a day. And there just wasn't time for them to quit and go to town and get something to eat and the something they, they got was not very nourishing. So we started, uh, uh, we hired someone to cook the food and bring it to them here. And uh, that helped a little bit. But, you know, a 240-pound cowboy or butcher eating out of a little styrofoam plate in his lap is not a pretty sight. <laughs> so, and I'm talking about me as a 240-pound cowboy. But, but we uh, uh, built uh, an open pavilion, sort of like a church dinner-on-the-ground pavilion, for them to eat under on picnic tables. 
and then we uh, were struggling to get the food brought in, <clears throat> so we built a uh, 20 by 20 foot industrial kitchen, and uh, we've now got our restaurant license, and uh, we eat lunch together every day, and I really like it. It's you know you go down there, there's an accountant sitting by a cowboy, sitting by a butcher, sitting by a vegetable farmer, uh, sitting by a clerk. And it's a lot of togetherness, and it's, it's the way it, it ought to be. Uh, we there's, There are no uh, waiters or waitresses. You walk up to the uh, window and get your food, and uh, you don't order. There's no menu. You don't order. Uh, you say yes or no, because we cook a meat that we raise on this farm and slaughter on this farm, and three vegetables that are grown on this farm and eggs that are produced on this farm. So pretty much everything but the salt and the sugar and the tea and the coffee are here. We call it pasture to plate. <laughs> now, I'm just curious because you live in the midst of this kind of bounty, and I think one of the things that um, people who have a more urban uh, living often feel jealous of, or, or I know I feel jealous of, is you know, when you're when you're kind of getting to go to the refrigerator or freezer and choose from essentially any cut of meat from this, you know, menagerie of animals. I mean, is there is there a cut or a, a, a breed or, or anything in particular that you really go to that that's like your favorite kind of farm dinner that um, that's the comfort food for you? Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a beef guy, and uh, I like. Uh, so that's that's my default meal would be beef. And as far as individual cuts, you know, it's all good if it's cooked right. And uh, uh, we're I'm, I'm thrilled that we are re-entering an era in which we are relearning how to utilize the whole carcass. You know, my mother, who was born in 1920, is deceased. Uh, and she could cook anything on a cow, from the tongue to the oxtail. She could cook anything, and it was good. And uh, my wife, who uh, was born in the 50s, uh, can does a great job with all the steaks and roasts and ground beef. And she raised three daughters who were born in the 80s. And uh, they, until recently, couldn't cook anything except maybe a hamburger. But... Uh, uh, because of the great works being done by so many of these chefs, and we got a lot of them here in Atlanta that are focused on farm-to-table whole carcass utilization, that uh, one of my daughters can now cook uh, beef tongue and uh, oxtail and uh, uh, test- sheep testicles, and, and it's good. It's really good. That's exciting. So not only a resurgence um, on your farm to to more traditional farming practices, but also a resurgence of, of cooking and cooking skills. And obviously those things go hand in hand. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really lovely to get a chance to speak with you. And I also wanted to say congratulations. I see here that um, the Georgia Conservancy will be recognizing you as their 2012 Distinguished Conservationist for your dedication to advancing sustainable and organic farming in Georgia. I know they're holding a benefit later in October. And 
for those of you listening, if you want to learn more about White Oak Pastures, um, I believe, Will, you, you have done a few small films, right? Uh, well, the Southern Foodways Alliance did a great film on our farm, and then there's some others, and all of them are on our website, which is whiteoakpastures.com. So definitely check those out and tune in next week as we bring you another episode of The Farm Report. Uh, Don't worry if you miss us live. All of our episodes are available through iTunes or on Stitcher. You can learn more about Heritage Radio Network by visiting us, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We hope if you enjoy the show, you will uh, click to support us and become a member today and tune in next week for another episode of the farm report what's hot at the green market you're about to find out now it's the grow nyc market update This is actually Jack Inslee filling in for Aaron Fairbanks, and this is the Grow NYC Market Update. I'm on the phone with Gene Hodesh, Publicity Coordinator for the Grow NYC Market Update, and every week we find out what's hot, what's on the way out, what's exciting, what's new, what's not to miss, and upcoming events. So, Gene, what's going on this week at the market? Hi, Jack. Well, we are happy to be on the phone with you, and I am sorry to say that the weather has cooled off and the summer fruit is on the way out. <laughs> There's still plenty of it in the market, but um, we're nearing the end of that season. And I was just thinking, I was at a wedding this weekend, and the bride and groom, instead of having a big wedding cake, they asked all the guests to bring pies, which is the perfect application for end of summer stone fruit. So you could make peach pies, berry pies, add apples to them to make them a bit, you know, pump them up a bit. I saw somebody made a tomato pie. Um, and as I was thinking about it, pie is something so great to, to think about when you're at the market because you can also get flour and you can get lard and butter from different vendors. So you can make an all-local pie to serve um, to your family and friends. Um, but coming in, things that I saw this week in the markets that are new, um, a couple weeks back on this show, I was talking about quince, and they're in now. So you can pick them up at Locust Grove, which is um, at Union Square a couple of days a week and also at 97th Street on Fridays. And when you go over to look at their quince, be sure you check out their different varieties of heirloom apples. You will find things you have never heard of before. Um, russets, for instance, are this really kind of gnarly-looking apple that has a super rough skin. It's not waxy or polished like the ones you'll find in bodegas or the grocery store. Um, And it's a flavor unlike anything you've had. They're super crunchy. They're really sweet. They don't look really beautiful, but they are definitely worth a try. Um, So this week we also saw horseradish root, and this is one of my personal favorite roots because the flavor is so like pungent and biting and completely overwhelming. It'll clear out your nostrils. It's really hot. Um, and as I was thinking about it, I mean, I love making Bloody Marys at home, and I was thinking, actually, this is a really good time of year to make an all-local Bloody Mary. You could make your own horseradish to add in. You could make tomato juice with the tomatoes. You can add celery. You could get some pickles and some pickle brine from Rick's Picks, like smokra and mean beans are really delicious in a Bloody Mary. So that's something that I think I might have to try this weekend. And actually, it's also still, you know, a great season to be canning. Rick actually put out a book a couple years ago called The Art of Preserving um, and have recipes in there for smokra, 
mean beans, um, and there are plenty of ingredients in the market like haricot vert and garlic and all kinds of hot peppers that you can throw in a jar and have your pickles for the months ahead. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was that tonight is Harvest in the Square, which is an event, a benefit tasting event for the Union Square Partnership. We work with a lot at Union Square. And there are tons of neighborhood restaurants that come, but Green Market always sets up a table, and tonight we're going to be serving a carrot apple beet slaw. So if anyone who's listening is heading to the event, please make sure to stop by and say hello. And if you're not, think about that. Carrot apple beet slaw is pretty easy to make at home, um, all with ingredients that are in season right now. Um, something not to miss, my roommate the other night made for dinner an eggplant parmesan, and it was so delightful, so delicious. Um, we have tons of varieties of eggplant in the market, everything from little fairy tale eggplants, which are, you know, about two or three inches long, to long, thin Japanese eggplant, to white eggplant, and then, of course, the large purple beauties that come in from the field at the end of the summer. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was still really hot. I wouldn't have ever thought about turning on my oven to roast anything. But now that the chill of fall is in the air, I'm spending more time in the kitchen. And um, this eggplant parmesan, it was like the eggplant was just velvety. It was so luscious. And then she'd made this homemade tomato sauce and spread it around and put fresh basil in there. And it was just fantastic. Um, and she was telling me she'd gone to Grand Army Plaza that weekend and found a bag of tomatoes for $4. It's heading towards the end of tomato season. You can find some really good deals out there. So it's a great time to make tomato sauce. Sounds great. Yeah. So um, upcoming, so it's, like I said, it's getting colder. And that always makes me start thinking about throwing dinner parties. Um, so when I think about how I'm going to serve my friends when they come over, I start to think about proteins in a way that I really don't when it's hotter outside, getting back again to not wanting to turn on the oven. But now that it's a little chillier outside, you know, I'm thinking about roasting chicken on Sunday afternoon um, and uh, also thinking about, you know, slow-braised meats. So a couple years ago, I remember I was having a dinner party. I really wanted to get a roast chicken, but all of the chicken vendors at the market were out that day. So I wandered around and found um, Karen Weinberg, who has Three Corner Field Farm, and said, you know, I'm having this dinner party. It's this many people. What might you suggest? And she came up. She said, why don't you serve lamb neck? People don't think about serving that that often. Um, so I would suggest that if you're thinking about having a dinner party, you want to serve some meat, go around, talk to the different meat purveyors, Tell them, you know, sort of an idea that you have, and they'll come back to you probably with suggestions of maybe some off-cuts that they've got that you wouldn't think of right off the bat. So lamb neck, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It was really delicious. And then we just slow-braised it, and then you can throw in all kinds of root vegetables and onions and make a really nice, tender dish. That sounds amazing. And it's also almost Goatober. So at Heritage here, we have to send out a plug for the goats if you guys can find any goat out there. Sounds like that could work well, too. Um, Absolutely. And do you guys have any good events coming up soon? We do. I wanted to tell everybody about New Green City, which is going to take place at the south end of Union Square on October 10th. It's a Wednesday. So the market will be in full swing in the north end of the park, and then in the south end we'll have all kinds of community partners, everybody from the new school to certified naturally grown to a representation of all of Grown YC's sister programs along with Green Market. So people will be set up engaging visitors with activities from apple tastings to the new school's going to lead some pop-up classes. Um, we'll have information about the city's bike share program. Um, so it should be really fun and lively. And if you're anywhere near Union Square on October 10th, it's happening from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. So stop by, say hello. We'd love to see you. 
Well, Gene, that's an awesome update. So for all the listeners, you want to make some pie with those end-of-the-summer fruits. The the quince is really hot right now, and uh, do not miss the eggplants. I can personally attest to those little fairy tale eggplants. They're delicious. So great tips for all of our listeners. Thank you so much. This has been the Grow NYC Market Update. And if you want more information on farmers, the market, or volunteer opportunities, check out grownyc.org and follow them on Twitter at Union Square Green Market, but that's spelled U-N-S-Q Green Market, and at NYC Green Markets. Again, this has been Jack Inslee with the Farm Report and the Grow NYC Market Update with Gene Hodesh, Publicity Coordinator for Grow NYC. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.